This is an ABC podcast. In Kurt Vonnegut's classic satirical sci-fi novel, Cat's Cradle, an atomic physicist has created this weird new form of matter. And he's accidentally formed a horrible doomsday device. He calls the substance Ice-9 and... If ever this Ice-9 makes contact with water of any kind, including, let's say, a piece of it gets in the ocean or in lakes and streams, it immediately transforms it to this frozen form of ice that's not usable by us. In fact, it would do the same to the water in our bodies. And that's just what it does. In a big freeze, the world's water is suddenly frozen solid by Ice-9 within seconds. When a 13-year-old American kid, Paul Steinhardt, read that book, he was enthralled by this cautionary tale about the responsibilities of scientists for their inventions. But something else captivated him too. It really got me also thinking about this idea that sort of stuck with me for many years, decades literally, that maybe there really are forms of matter that we didn't know about, that we thought were impossible, and yet might be extremely important might even be ubiquitous in the universe. Now, Paul could never have known that this curiosity in his teens would spark a lifetime of adventures. Raiders of the Lost Ark, eat your heart out because this story will take you from the outer reaches of the cosmos. But not just any old meteorite, a special class of meteorites that would have formed near the very beginning of the solar system. To the wilds of far eastern Russia, bear country. Famous Kamchatka bears, which are ferocious bears. They're at the level of grizzly bears, at least as ferocious. And inside the nuclear ephemera of the world's first atomic bomb test site in New Mexico. So at the same time there was a weapon of destruction, it was also a weapon of creation. A creation of something that no one had seen before. I couldn't quite believe it when I first heard it, but this is all for real, I promise you. And it's a story of flying in the face of scientific orthodoxy, no matter what it takes. Welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. And over the next two episodes, a wild ride indeed, starting with a maverick idea. So by the early 1980s, Paul Steinhardt is all grown up. He's a newly appointed professor in theoretical physics at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's been contemplating what kinds of matter everything in the world is made up of. So inside every material are atoms and the way these atoms are arranged means everything. It's what gives steel its strength. It's what gives glass its transparency or a porcelain cup its fragility. Atoms come together to form crystal structures. And I'm not just talking about the big clumps of crystal you find in a hippie shop, right? This is more about the shape they take. So in a crystalline structure, atoms form building blocks that then get repeated over and over again in an orderly pattern. But what mathematicians had shown in the early 1900s was that if you try to construct something through such building blocks, there's only certain symmetries, only certain facets, only certain shapes which are possible. You can think of an analogy. If you wanted to tile your floor and you wanted to use identical pieces 
And you might say, oh, could I do it with squares? Well, surely you've seen tiles in maybe in your bathroom, which are made of squares. And you know, you could do it with rectangles. You know, you could do it with triangles. You know, you could do it with hexagons. You might've thought there was an infinite number of possibilities, but actually we've just run through all the possibilities. There's only certain shapes, certain symmetries, which you can have. Symmetry means I can rotate the pattern by a certain angle and get back the same pattern. But this is where nature steps in. She has strict rules about what's allowed and what's not. The most famous symmetry, which is forbidden for crystals and which was thought to be impossible in nature for atoms to form, was fivefold symmetry, the symmetry of a pentagon. The ancients knew this, by the way. The ancients knew that if you tried to tile a wall and use pentagons, you run into trouble. This is probably the reason why pentagons and pentagrams have sort of mystical notions associated with them because it was known there was something very strange about pentagons. But the rules of nature weren't enough to rein in Paul's curiosity. He's a big thinker, right? This was a guy who was studying the Big Bang and the beginnings of the universe. And he made a radical proposition. What if we were wrong about nature? What if whole new forms of matter were out there waiting to be discovered? What if, instead of one building block of atoms repeated over and over again, some crystals had two building blocks, kind of intertwined, still repeating, but the patterns of atoms were more subtle, harder to decipher? If this were sound, this would be like a disharmony. Two tones that, you know, that could never be in phase. Then you could suddenly get not just fivefold symmetry, but the infinitude of symmetries that you thought were impossible before. And that was a crazy idea. Not just crazy, but mathematically and physically impossible. These fantasy forms of matter that Paul called quasi-crystals, they just couldn't exist, not in nature. And they could not even exist in the laboratory, we thought. But a wannabe PhD student back then, Dov Levine, he loved Paul's wacky idea. And together they became obsessed for years. Because if quasi-crystals existed in the real world... You now have a window open to a whole new zoology of new forms of matter. And since the properties, the physical properties of matter depend very much on the symmetries of their atomic arrangement, that means they're going to have novel physical properties. Which means they could be used to make whole new technologies and tools and gadgets that we hadn't even imagined yet. But for Paul, this was also about something more fundamental. I know, it's like a, an open field. You know, you're an open, no one else is exploring. It's an open field of discovery and you have a chance to be the first one there to discover it. That's a rare opportunity in the life of a theoretical physicist. He didn't know it at the time, but this idea was going to turn him into a kind of physicist Indiana Jones and take him back to the early stages of our solar system. Paul's peers were totally sceptical, including his early mentor, Richard Feynman, the legendary science populariser and Nobel laureate. It's a story Paul tells in his rollicking book, The Second Kind of Impossible. In science, says Paul, some findings are irrefutable, some laws can't be violated. That's the first kind of impossible. The second kind are those countless ideas that can be challenged by interrogating original assumptions or by coming up with new evidence. And suddenly you have this, what I described as this path to a new idea 
that's going to be astounding because it's going to violate something that people have believed and thought could not be possible. But to any mere mortal, Paul's attempt to prove that this weird new form of matter actually exists seemed infinitely impossible. First came a coincidence. In 1984, a scientist just a few hundred kilometres away in Maryland, Dan Schechtman, who knew nothing about Paul's radical idea, happened to make a random discovery. His lab accidentally synthesised a bizarre new material. And when they shone an electron beam through it to study the arrangement of atoms inside, the scatter pattern that the electron microscope produced looked exactly like Paul and Dov's prediction of what their imagined quasi-crystal would produce. So huge was this discovery. Dan Schechtman won the 2011 Nobel Prize for Chemistry for it. But Paul and Dov were beside themselves because here was the first ever evidence that quasi-crystals could actually exist for real. Now that we knew that they existed in the laboratory, and so they were physically possible, they weren't just our mathematical imagination, then the natural question is, crystals exist in nature as well as the laboratory. Is it possible there exists some in nature? And so the quest began. They started hunting for over two decades. My first way of searching for them was like the dumbest possible way, (laughs) which is you go to your local museum and you look through the collection. You look to see if anyone misidentified something. Didn't notice that there's a quasi-crystal sitting in a display case. And so you did this. You, You searched the world's museums in a kind of informal way. Yes, And with another student, Peter Yu, Paul delved into a global database of minerals too. Paul was a total novice in geology. He was a physicist. So there was a heap to learn and there were plenty of bum steers along the way. Have you seen fool's gold before? Only in pictures. Okay. Forms beautiful cubes which are golden. And that's why it's called fool's gold because some prospectors who didn't know better thought it was gold when it's really just a mixture of iron and sulfur. But it also turns out that sometimes it forms in a shape which looks like it has five-fold facets to it. And that, according to the laws of crystallography, is impossible. If you measure carefully, though, you discover it's not really perfect pentagons. And alas, fool's gold fooled this prospector too. They put the word out internationally about their search for potential quasi-crystals. And six years later, by now it's 2007, out of the blue... Someone emails, an Italian mineralogist called Luca Bindi. Well, he's someone I had never heard of before. Luca was a curator at the Natural History Museum at the University of Florence, where he's now professor. He, for some reason, liked to look for odd minerals, which were not quasi-crystals, but shared some of the unusual properties of quasi-crystals. And Paul, who by now was at Princeton University, where today he's the eminent Albert Einstein Professor in Science, shared his list of suspects, crystal types, he thought could be quasi-crystals. And Lucas started digging in his museum's collection. Days, weeks, months went by. Finally, after about a year and a half, he said, you know, I have something in our collection that isn't in your catalog at all, but it has certain combinations of elements which some of the quasi-crystals that have been made in the laboratory have. It has aluminum, and it had some copper, it had some iron, that's what it claimed to have, and 
So he thought that was a good sample to try. So begins your odyssey together. And there's this tiny, tiny crystal sample, just, I think, three millimetres wide. It's inside a plastic box. It's long forgotten inside a storage room of the Natural History Museum inside the University of Florence. Right. It had a label on it, which was curious. It which gave it a name. It was called Katirkite. It described itself as coming from the Koryak Mountains, which is a particular area in far eastern Russia. So we're talking about as far east and north as you can get, north of the Kamchatka Peninsula, in a mountain chain that's across the Bering Straits from Alaska. And it's very desolate. It's not inhabited in that area. That's what it said it was. One thing I've learned for sure from all this experience is if you have a sample in the museum that has a label on it, (laughs) you can't trust it. (laughs) You cannot trust it. Oh, yes. You need much more evidence than that to be convinced of what it is. People are about to hear where that little sample led you. But Lucas starts to analyse it. And in fact, he destroys part of the sample in doing that. And so what you're left with are just two specks of crystal, tenth of a millimetre in size. You know, not even, or barely discernible with a naked eye. You know, microns to tens of microns in size. But did that tiny sample have a secret to reveal? Now, remember by now, Paul has looked at countless other crystal samples from all over the world over years and years. With failure after failure. So you go in expecting failure, not success. Bookings for the electron microscope at Princeton were in hot demand, even during winter break. Paul eventually got a slot at 5am on a freezing morning on the day after New Year's. They loaded up the specimen, angled the electron beam through a grain of their tiny speck of a sample. And... You gasped. Oh my, I didn't think either of us said anything, but I think we knew, you know... This, this was it. This, this is what we were looking for. What they saw blew Paul away. There was the most amazing, perfect quasi-crystal diffraction pattern that I had ever seen in an electron microscope. As good as or better than materials that had been made in the laboratory. These were extremely sharp spots. This had perfect lines. And then what makes it so obvious that it's a quasi-crystal and not a crystal, the pattern is full of pentagons and decagons and rings of spots that form tenfold rings around the center, which is impossible, which is famously impossible for crystals. So describe that feeling of knowing that you might have stumbled on what could be the, the first human sighting of a naturally occurring quasi-crystal. Well, you just knew it was history in the making. Something that we had thought was, first of all, was impossible for a long time. Then we thought was impossible to have in nature. We now know it's been seen in nature. And if you find one... There's sure to be more. It's indescribable. It's the kind of thing that a scientist dreams of having an experience, but almost never has. After over 20 years of searching for the forbidden quasi-crystal, had nature finally proved scientists wrong? Well, you paired up with two eminent American geologists, one after the other, and they're great, irascible characters in your book. Yes. And they are so not going to make it easy for you. And immediately they point out that something is very dodgy and probably impossible about your sample. Yes. First of these characters was uh, Lincoln Hollister, who's 
very famous uh, mineralogist and geologist. He looked at some of the first samples that were brought back from the moon, for example. And uh, he listened to my story. He sort of gave me this strange look at the end of it, which I came to recognize over the years <laughs> as being a warning sign that something bad is about to be told to me. And he said, you know, that's a very interesting story, but I'm afraid what you have there is impossible. I don't know anything about quasi-crystals. I don't know anything about that. What I can tell you for sure is that in nature, you're never going to find alloy, which has aluminum in it, because aluminum it has a voracious hunger for oxygen. And the only way we find aluminum in nature is attached to oxygen. But in this crystal, aluminum was there in its pure form. And so probably what you've got there is just a piece of stuff that comes from some foundry someplace. and. I said, well, when you say it's impossible, and do you mean it's impossible like one plus one equals three? Or do you mean it's impossible in the sense that it's contrary to our experience up to this point, but maybe it's possibly true? Fortunately, he did not throw me out of his office at that point. <laughs> you know, no, he's a tough guy. Fortunately, he thought about it for a moment and he said, well, I can think of a way this could happen near the center of the earth where there's enough pressure there that you could break apart aluminum from oxygen, but then you have to figure out a way to get to the surface. And to get to the surface, well, it'd have to be something that has been conjectured but never been shown to exist called a deep superplume. And uh, maybe our sample is in fact evidence that what you thought was impossible is possible. That is the second kind of impossible, a gold mine, something you have to go after. And go after it, Paul and Luca did, to prove that this one-off weird sample of quasi-crystal that they'd found in a storeroom in Florence was actually real and actually made in nature, not by humans. They needed to find out where it had come from. The label on the box had said Katirkite, so that's what they started to look for in collections worldwide. They only found four mentions. The most promising was in Russia's St. Petersburg Mining Museum, a sample that had landed there three decades earlier. The first reporting of this mineral in the literature, in, in journals, was from a sample that was in their collection. But the museum just wasn't forthcoming with information or with sharing extra bits of the sample it had. This meant Paul and Luca couldn't compare it with their Florence sample. Well, they didn't know how precious it was, but you traced down one of the lead scientists on that that paper that mentioned this mineral, Katirkite. You traced him down to Israel. Yes. And he really didn't want to play ball, did he? He, In fact, he wanted money if he was going to help you. A lot of this is a detective story of looking for people. Like, we tried to look for the person who had sold that sample to the Florence Museum a few decades earlier. And we tried to look for the person who had put that sample in the St. Petersburg Museum. Well, it was hard to track him down within Russia, only to discover that he had been, uh, you know, connected to the Soviet government, the KGB. He had contacts in the KGB, but had since emigrated to Israel and then to track him down there. And as you say, although he quickly agreed that he was the person who had put that sample in the museum and even claimed that he is the person who had actually found the sample, which turned out to be false, he would not give us more information or more sample if he claimed to have some, but he wouldn't give us more information or more sample unless we were to pay him a goodly sum. I tried to explain to him 
you know, we're not looking for platinum here. We're looking for something worthless, iron, copper, and aluminum. But it has important scientific value, but he wouldn't hear of it. They'd hit a dead end, and they didn't trust the Russian scientist anyway. So back in the Florence Museum, where their specimen was found, the records alleged it had been sold to the museum by a private mineral collector in Amsterdam named Nico Kukuk. So... In the freakiest of coincidences now, Luca happens to be out to dinner one night in Florence with the Dutch friend of his sister, and they're talking about this whole saga. He said, that's a very common name in the Netherlands. It's like Smith, so you have very little chance of finding that person. He said, but there is a, a woman, a widow, who uh, lives a few blocks away from me. I help her get groceries. She happens to have that last name. When I get back to Amsterdam, I'll look her up. Well, back in Amsterdam, what do you know, the 80-year-old widow called Deborah happened to have been married to the very same mineral collector they were after. I mean, how random is that? Luca jumped on a plane almost immediately, but the woman said she knew nothing about her husband's mineral collection. Didn't her husband keep anything and no information at all? No, 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 until finally she relents and says, okay, when my husband sold the collection, he didn't sell the secret diary that he used to keep. Yes, a secret diary. And in the diary, sure enough, there's an entry about Katirkite. Her husband's diary said he'd bought the sample on a trip to Romania in the late 1980s when the country was ruled by the iron fist of the dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. This is Soviet times. He'd taken a trip to Romania when it was part of the Eastern Bloc and met a fellow by the name of Tim, Tim the Romanian. It was strictly forbidden to sell minerals to people from the West at that time. It would get you sent to Siberia. That's how he'd gotten his sample. So now we had an idea of where our sample had come from. All we had to do was find Tim the Romanian. Which sounds maybe hard, but compared to the bizarre things we had undergone up to this point to find the fellow in Russia or to find the widow, this seemed like the easiest thing of all. Because how many Romanians are named Tim or mineral smugglers? How many can there be? So Luca returns to Amsterdam and fronts up on Deborah's doorstep again. She's never heard of a Tim the Romanian before. Luca probed further. Back and forth they went. Nope, she had no idea. It looked pretty hopeless until finally, once again, she broke a little bit and said, however, my husband used to keep a secret, secret diary. <laughs> yes, a second diary. And this one contained a big lead that took them right back to the St. Petersburg Mining Museum, back to the recalcitrant Russian scientist in Israel who'd refused to play ball with Paul earlier. The diary confirmed that the Katirkite sample in the museum in Florence, it had actually been collected by the very same Russians. After a whole lot more detective work, Paul and Luca worked out who had actually dug up the crystal. It was back in 1979, a young student called Valery Kriachko was sent by the recalcitrant Russian on a grand expedition to the wilds of Far East Russia in search of platinum. He hadn't found platinum, but he'd find these shiny objects, which clearly were not platinum, 
by digging deep into mud at the edge of a stream, many layers, layers deep to mud that had never, hadn't been exposed before for, turns out, more than 10,000 years. And he found these shiny little nuggets in hoping that even though he had failed to find platinum, this would at least prove that he had worked very hard while he was out there. Because if he hadn't, he would have been severely punished. He knew that. Paul and Luca's mission was now to find out if this young scientist was still alive 30 years later and after more sleuthing, amazing news. Valeri Kriachko was very much alive, he was in his 60s and he even knew of Paul and Luca's discovery of the first ever naturally occurring quasi-crystal. What he didn't know was he was the one who'd actually collected that sample, that sample of quasi-crystal. Paul found Valeri. They didn't speak the same language, but they got talking using Google Translate. At that time, immediately say, if you ever have a desire to go out there and look for this stuff, I'll be happy to take you. The place he'd got the sample from was remote, so remote that the stream that he dug it up from wasn't on any map. But Paul thought it was now or never. They had to take him up on his offer to retrace his steps back across the Russian tundra. They needed to know if this stuff was real because these tiny crystals held a bigger promise and had a very big story to tell, as you're going to hear next week on Science Friction. We're heading into the Russian wilderness on an impossible mission in search of the second kind of impossible. Paul Steinhardt is Albert Einstein Professor in Science at Princeton University and I'm Natasha Mitchell. On Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.